morning, church. I'm going to give you a little secret this morning before we start. Jesus loves you. He does. He loves everything about you. You might not think you're worthy. You might think that you have failed. You might not think that you're qualified. You might not think that you measure up. But I'm going to tell you right now, regardless of your sin, regardless of your past, regardless of what you think of yourself, God loves you the way you are. Here's the good news and all that. But he's not willing to leave you where you are. He wants to take you on a journey. He wants to take you along to places where you've never been before. He wants to show you great and marvelous things that you've never beheld before. He wants to open your eyes to the splendor and the glory of who he is and what he has in store for you. And what he has in store for you is far more than what I have in store for you. What do you want, peanuts or do you want the banquet table? Because I got peanuts. Two for five, five for ten, something like that. But God has his table spread for you. And he says, come and eat. Eat until you can't eat anymore. Come and drink. It's all free. You don't pay anything for it. It's all for you. Because he loves you. Loves you just the way you are, but he's not willing to leave you that way. And this morning, we're still on that journey with Jesus. Remember we talked about last week is that Jesus is on the on glory road. He is headed to the glory of the Father. But that path isn't necessarily easy. It's not necessarily one of comfort. Well, it certainly isn't one of comfort. But it is filled with the glory of God. And this morning, that's what we're going to start looking at. And I've kind of, you know, we started at chapter 13 last week in the Gospel of John. and We're moving towards the resurrection. But there's a lot in John between 13 and the resurrection. So... I'm making some pretty big steps forward. And last week we were talking about when Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples celebrating the Passover meal and he washed their feet. And that's kind of where we ended. But what happens next is, is that in, in um, 14, 15, 16, and 17, he gives this little encouragement to his disciples he starts talking to them about what it means to be the vine and the branch. And, and he talks about being connected to him in ways that they've never been connected before. And that, that his father is the gardener. And he walks them through this discourse, if you would want to say it that way, of teaching to his disciples kind of the last things he's going to say to them before he leaves and goes to the father. In chapter 17, it's called Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. And he prays for his disciples because they're heading into a, a really uh, difficult time as they watch their teacher, their rabbi, the Messiah, being tortured and, and all the suffering he's going to do. And they don't want him to have to go through that, but Jesus says, I'm going through it and it doesn't matter what you say, it's going to happen anyhow. And so he prays for his disciples. And the greatest part of that prayer is that he prays for those who have never seen him yet believe. That's you. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? Jesus had a prayer for you. 
and for me. And after he had that little prayer time with his disciples, and he got up, walked through the city, and went to a place that was very common to them. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, there are other translations that say the Kidron Valley. And and let me explain this to you, because if we jump right past that and just get right on into the passage, we're going to miss some pretty significant things about this. Is that the Kidron Valley or ravine, it wasn't a big one, it was very small. And the brook that ran down there oftentimes was just a very little bit of water that was running through there. And the interesting thing is is that at, at one end of this, this valley in the city of Jerusalem is where the temple was built. And around the temple altar, they put this huge drainage system because at the temple, that's where they would sacrifice all the animals. And so they had this drainage system that ran underneath the temple and dumped down the Kidron Valley, down this little brook, the Kidron Brook. And as Jesus is leading his disciples down kind of out of the city and down across that brook and stepping back up and going into the valley. At this time of the year, Passover time, that little brook was running red. You probably don't know this. I didn't know it until I read about it. 200,000 lambs are slaughtered at this time in the Old Covenant. The enormous amount of blood that's flowing down that brook. And Jesus is taking his disciples with him. After he has spent this time in prayer, he's going now to the place of prayer, the garden, where he's often gone with his disciples. And they come down and the disciples are probably, it's nighttime, but they can smell the blood. And they're looking down and they know because they've been around the city for a long time, and they've been watching what's happening. They know that they have taken their lambs to the to the temple, and that little lamb had its throat slit, and all the blood drained out of it, and it went down into the drain, and it went down through the Kidron Valley. But now here's the reality of it. They are stepping over this blood that is flowing in this little brook, and this blood that is flowing is the last time this blood will ever flow for the covering of sin. And they're stepping over the blood of these lambs. And what are they following? The Lamb Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. I mean, there's, there's poetry here that God lays out for us in this passage that we sometimes just rush right on through and we don't see... The the poetry that God has in the fact that, that the Lamb of God, who will be slain for the sins of the world, is leading His disciples, His sheep. The shepherd is leading His sheep across this little brook flowing with blood. And they're going into the garden. They're going there and they're going to enter into this garden in prayer. This garden that Jesus and disciples are going to is actually in the middle of an olive orchard. You might know it as the Mount of Olives. Have you heard of that before? Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. You might know it also in some of the other Gospels as the Garden of 
Gethsemane. That is also this garden. And, and so Jesus is taking his disciples and he's going down there with them. And he is going to have... This is a place where they regularly met together as disciples. And, and, and it's, it's just unbelievable, this little garden. Because there's a lot more to it than what's going there. So let's pick up with verses 2 and 3. It says, Now Judas who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, once again, we read that. We think of a band of soldiers. We might think like, you know, ten Ten soldiers and some guys, you know, with the the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you know. So there might be like 20 guys that come down with torches and lanterns and weapons. But a band, another word for a band of soldiers is a cohort. That's a legal term that they had to describe how many were in a cohort. And so this cohort of soldiers actually has a number to it. 600. This is just no small band of men coming down. It's not just some of the good old boys from out back that are going like, let's go get him. Get your pitchforks and your, your, you know, whatever. Like they're off to get the ogre or something. We're talking about 600 Roman soldiers with short swords. They are all armed. They have lanterns. They have torches. Then you take also that you have guards from the the, um, temple guards are there. Now the temple guards, they're not allowed to carry uh, a sword. That would be a felony, a charge. And so what they're given is a club. And so they go down with clubs. And there's probably at least... 25 or 30 of those fellers. Then you have some priests and you have some Pharisees and you have this whole group. So the minimum amount of people coming down this little path to the Garden of Gethsemane is the minimum 650 men with torches, with lanterns, with, with weapons. And they're coming to get this notorious bad dude called Jesus, the Lamb of God. You know? And, and so you can imagine... That as these guys are coming down the hill, because they're coming down one side, they'll go across the brook, they'll go back up into the, the olive orchard, olive grove, and in the middle of the olive grove is the garden, which is a walled garden. There's a wall around it. And that's where Jesus and the disciples are. How much noise do you think that's making in the middle of the night? That's a lot of noise. You got that right, girlfriend. They are clanking and they are talking and they're, it, they are not on a hunt. And, and Roman soldiers don't mind that people know that they're coming. They don't mind that people see them in all of their armor with their swords hanging off, maybe a shield, and they've got torches going. 
And now they're walking down and they are headed to this place. But the interesting thing about all of this is that they come under the cover of darkness in the middle of the night. They have these 600 guys. It's pretty hard to hide 600 guys even in the middle of the night. But there, there's a strategy behind that in that the, as they go in the middle of the night, there aren't very many people out creeping around at the middle of the night. And if they are, as our kids Uncle Ken used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. You see 600 soldiers with short swords. If you're up to no good, you're beating feet to get home. And they don't really care about you because they're not out after you. And the reason that they went in the middle of the night is because the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were afraid that the people, if they did it in broad daylight in the middle of the day, that the people would riot because they're taking Jesus, the healer, the prophet, the teacher, the rabbi, the Messiah, they're taking him in broad daylight. And so to, to get away from creating a riotous situation, they've hatched this plan to do it in the middle of the night. And Judas is leading them down to the place where they're going. Let's pick up verses 4 through 6. It says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, from this account of John, we get the picture that Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room. They made their little jump through the city, down to the trail to go across the, the Kidron Valley and over into the garden where they're going to spend time. And once they got to the garden, they've been there for like maybe five or ten minutes, and all of a sudden, here come all the 650 guys with clubs and swords and lanterns and torches to get Jesus. Because that's, that's kind of how we read it. It's like boom, boom. But if you go and you look back at some of the other Gospels, their account of this time, you get a little different picture. And so what I'm going to do to you, I'm going to read to you from both Mark and from Luke. Here's what Mark says. Mark 14, starting with verse 32. It is not going to be on the screen. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands 
of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let me take you now to Luke's gospel, chapter 22, starting with verse 39. And he came out and went as his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not be tempted or enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus and kissed him. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, That's what's taking place between the time that Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane and the 650 guys come armed to the teeth to drag him away. There's this prayer thing going on. And even this passages in Mark and Luke don't really give us justice because we read through it quickly. But I'm assuming or imagining, you know, a holy imagination would say that Jesus is in this great distressed moment with his soul. I mean, he's in great anguish. It is of such great anguish. Luke describes it as great drops of blood and sweat mixed together because Jesus is in such anguish. And here we have Jesus. He, he, he brings a request before the Father. In Mark fourteen thirty six, it says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, Not what I will, but what you will. And in Luke, he said the same thing. If you were willing to remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's interesting to me that as Jesus, the Son of God, equal to God in every way, when he comes to the Father... He puts his request out to Jesus. And this is a pretty big request. And this is one of those things that could have taken place. But Jesus says, you know, here's my will. My will is if we can find another way to do this deal. If we can find another path in which to accomplish the things that need to be accomplished. Then I would be all in favor of that. I want to do it. But if there's another way we can do it, let me know because we can do it that way. And then Jesus says what? Not my will, but your will be done. How many times do we try to impose our will upon God? God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Who can know the mind of Christ? Who can tell God where all these things take place? Who can tell God what to do? Who gives counsel to God? There's no one. No one. 
And yet there are times when we try to step out and be more than what Jesus ever was. And we say, this is the will that you need to bow to, God. It's my will. My will be done, God. My will. But we need to start taking up the language of Jesus. This is a request I'm bringing before you. And it would be awesome if we could do it this way. But listen, if we can't, it's not my will that matters. It's your will that needs to be done. Your will, God. When, when Jesus asks for this cup to be removed, I, I want you to get the idea about this. He's not fearful of the physical suffering that he is going to be entering into. And it is significant, this physical suffering. If you've not watched The Passion of the Christ, you'll get a good idea what the physical suffering is. But that was not his concern when he said, let's remove this cup from me. Because he knew, he had the knowledge in his mind that all the sin of the world, all the ugliness, the most hideous acts of mankind would be placed upon him to bear on the cross. And that it was only with his blood that that sin would ever be removed. He knows as he carries the weight of the sin of the world to the cross and bears it on the cross, the glory he has shared with the Father will no longer be with him. He knows that the holiness of God will no longer be his to abide in. He will be utterly and absolutely alone carrying the sin of the world by himself in this most historic moment for all people who would ever put their faith in Him. All by Himself. It is absolutely unimaginable. Matter of fact, if you look in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil and the strong with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That was the prophecy made about Jesus and what kind of death he would be, be suffering. What he would actually be doing in his death. Bearing the transgressions of all people. Carrying that sin, the weight of all of that. All of the iniquity, all the sin, all the transgressions of the entire world. All the way from Adam and Eve to the very last person that will ever be born on this planet. Jesus carried it all on the cross before the Father. And that is the cup he was looking to have someone else take. But not his will, the will of the Father to be done. Jesus absolutely knew what would be required of him. He knew that he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He knew that it was his sacrifice 
of epic proportions that would be required to utterly destroy the grip of sin and death. He also knew first for the he also knew for the first and only time in all of eternity he would be separated from the love, the community and fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit. They have always existed perfectly in love in harmony, in community, in fellowship. They needed nothing else for them to be satisfied. The three of them had everything perfectly together the entire time. And now for one moment, as Jesus hangs on the cross, that is all going to go away. He will not know the fellowship. He will not know the community. He will not know the love of the Father. He is put aside. One and only time. But He knows that's what's coming. And that's why when we look at what Paul or Luke records in, in Luke chapter 22, it says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Isn't that just like the Father? I mean, at the time that we need God the most, I mean, we think we needed God before this, but at the 11th hour and the 59th minute, when we are in absolute utter despair, who shows up? God does. God comes to strengthen us. He does it maybe by the word of an encouragement from a friend from church. Maybe it's a phone call from a loved one. Maybe it's you flip open your Bible and, and you're just crazy out of your mind. You don't know where to read. And you go down and you look on, on the pages and all of a sudden you read something that stirs in your heart just the, a wellspring of God's encouragement into your life for that moment. That's what God does. He did it with his son. He did it with Jesus. He sent an angel. And I don't know which angel it was. But whoever that angel was, when he came down and he ministered to Jesus, he gave Jesus exactly what he needed to be strengthened right there and right then. And that is important. That is significant. Now let's go back to the narrative in John. 4 through 6. We're back to that little portion. Then Jesus, knowing all that happened, would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you think seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said this, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now what I want you to do is, uh, uh, I want to bring it out in the New Living Translation. And that's John 18.4 because I really think it's specific and I really like the way that <clears throat> they translated this particular verse. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus steps forward. He knows who's coming. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what the end result is going to be. He knows the separation from the Father and from the Spirit. He knows all of that stuff. And he hears the clanging of swords coming down the pathway. He sees the torchlight. He sees the lantern work. He's behind this walled garden. It would be easy to cut and run and go out the back door and get out of Dodge. But instead of waiting for them to come and find him, he steps through the door. He steps forward right into the face of adversity. And he says to them, who are you looking for? Who is it, that, who is it you're looking for? You see, that is just 
unbelievable what happens there because this is divine confidence that Jesus has. He has been wrestling in the agony of what lies before him at the cross and he has overcome the struggle through the strength that God gave to him through the angel. And so it's with the confidence of the Father that he steps up. And remember back in chapter 13, in verse thir- in, in um, chapter 13, he knew that this hour had come. But later on in chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, it says this, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So now what we have after the ministry of the the angel to Jesus is in all of his glory, his godly glory, Jesus has the confidence of the Father and he steps up and meets those who were looking for him. He steps right into the face of adversity. Right there. Just does it. Just steps up. Uh, That's where Jesus and I are different. I would have been running the other way. Because really, at heart, I'm a coward. Aren't you glad you belong? 12-step program of cowards. (laughs) And before we go on, because, you know, in this, Jesus identifies who he is. But before I move on, I want to draw a parallel between Jesus and Adam. Because once again, there's something significant going on here that we need to kind of open our eyes and go like, oh, oh yeah, oh. So let me help you get the ah moment. So in the garden, God created, at first he put Adam and Eve, he brought them together. Everything in the garden was perfect. No sin, no death, no shame, no guilt. No weeds in the ground. Lots of fruit. The water was absolutely like mind-blowing delicious. And then Adam and Eve sinned. And God would come and talk and walk with Adam and Eve. He says in the cool of the morning and at the cool of night. God was their father. And they would walk with him. And he would just tell them the most amazing, glorious things that they could ever imagine. And they're walking with him and then sin comes. And what happens with Adam? He hides. And God calls for him. Adam, where are you? I'm hiding over here in the bushes, Lord. Daddy, why are you hiding? Because I'm naked and afraid. He pulls back. You see, what happens is is what what Adam does is he brings, through his action of sin, he brings sin to all of humanity. Through Adam, you and I suffer sinful lives. It's part of our DNA. You You cannot avoid it. You are a dirty, rotten little sinner. Amen? Saved by grace. Amen? Amen. And that's what Adam did. And so now we have Jesus in the garden. And when it would have been convenient for him to hide, he steps forward. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't bring sin to the world. 
He is the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. The Romans says, as one man brought sin into the world, so Jesus, the Son of God, took sin away. There's there's the parallel right there. Adam hid. Jesus came, stepped forward. Adam sinned. Jesus says, you will have new birth. In me, you will have new birth, and you will be rid of your sin. Adam brought sin. Jesus took sin away. That's the parallel that we need to know. That, that when Adam hid, Jesus stepped up as God. On these verses, 4 through 6, instead of waiting to be found, Jesus stepped forward to meet the armed crowd. And in response to their question, he openly identifies himself Jesus knew what was going to happen to him, and he had nothing to hide from. Rather, he stepped in to it for what they were coming for. He knew what was going to happen, and he stepped right into it. Do you see what happens when Jesus asks them who they're looking for? And he says, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, well, that's me. I'm he. I'm him. They all take a step backwards, and they fall to the ground. Imagine 650 armed men with lanterns. Oh, man, it's just comedic, isn't it? They just fall down. They just fall on the ground. Now, you, you, you might think that because Judas had an idea, he saw Jesus perform all kinds of miracles and do all kinds of crazy stuff. He raised people from the dead. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they probably had a good idea about Jesus. They knew that he did all kinds of crazy miracles, and they were jealous of him, and that's the reason they were there. But those Roman soldiers had no clue who this Jesus of Nazareth was. They didn't know what he had done. They had no reason to be afraid of Jesus. But yet when Jesus steps up and he tells them, I am he, 650 armed men, fall to the ground. Now, that's because Jesus answered by using his divine title, his divine name. If you think back to the story of Moses when he was out hiding in the desert because he murdered an Egyptian soldier and he got married, now he's tending his father-in-law's sheep out in the wilderness and he's walking by and all of a sudden he turns and looks and there's this bush this sagebrush that's absolutely on fire it's burning but it's a mystery to him because it's not being consumed it's just burning but it's not burning up it's burning but not burning up and so obviously that would grab somebody's attention and so Moses is kind of taking a little look at it and he's stepping a little bit closer because is, is it really burning up? Is it really hot flame? What's the deal? And then all of a sudden he hears a voice from heaven that says, Moses, take your sandals off for the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. And I want to have a conversation with you. Moses might not be the smartest, you know, the brightest light bulb in the shed. But when he heard a voice from heaven and didn't see anybody around, he pretty much clued into the fact that this was God. I better pay attention. God's speaking to me. 
So he has this conversation with God. And in the process of this, what God is telling him he wants him to do is, I want you to go down now back to Egypt, and I want you to talk to Pharaoh and have my children, all of Israel, released out of captivity so that they can go to the promised land. And Moses throws out all kinds of complaints and reasons why he can't do it, and it's just all a bunch of hogwash. And God had already chosen him anyway, so he had no choice but to go. And so he steps up to it. But he, he kind of goes like, and exactly when I get there and I tell all of Israel that I'm here to lead them out of captivity and they say, who sent you? What do I tell them? What do I tell them? Who do I say sent me? And, and God says, you tell them, I am sent you. I am what I am. We call it maybe the great I am. Right? We sing a song like that. The great I am. So when Jesus here now at the garden, he steps forward and they say, hey, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And at the invocation of the name of God, from God, identifying himself as God, you can't help but fall on your face or fall down. You can't help it. I mean, that's what, that's, that's what it tells us in, Philippian, in Philippians. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's already starting to happen right here. They just fell down. They didn't know what to say, though, because they were dumbfounded. And so they have this thing going on where they are just because of God's name. Now, the... the the crazy part about this is all of this great, great crowd, they fell to the ground at the expression of God's name. And in a very real sense, this armed crowd did not arrest Jesus, but rather he arrested them. He grabbed them and he said, this is who I am. And they were arrested. And in a, in in the most gracious way he could, he was giving them a warning that they were way in over their heads. You have no idea who you're messing with. Because do you know that Jesus could, at a heartbeat, have said, Gabriel, Michael, bring the boys down here. Angels, 20 feet tall, big old nasty flaming swords, just standing there like this, and you're like, It would strike fear into you. You would soil your shorts. You would be a mess. And if you didn't drop dead, all they would have to do is take their flaming sword and touch you, and it would be like, you're gone. You know, it's like when you put something in the microwave and put it in there too long, and all of a sudden you hear that last pop, and you open it up, and you look inside the microwave, and there it is. You don't know what it is, But you know it's in there because it's all over the inside the microwave. And you're going like, was that a Roman soldier? Because it kind of looks like a flaming sword hit him. And that's what Jesus could have done, but he chose not to. You see, he was absolutely in control of this whole situation. 
There was nothing outside his realm of knowledge. There was nothing outside of his ability to control what was going on. He absolutely knew the beginning from the end. Matter of fact, he he said this earlier in the Gospel of John at chapter 10. He said, I lay my life down that that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So those guys are, even though they're they're there to arrest Jesus, they're not arresting Jesus. Jesus is just going like, all right, you know what? Let's just deal with this thing and let's move along because there's nothing you can do. If I don't want to go with you, I don't have to go with you, but I'm going to make life easy on you. I'm going to go with you. And so after they get up off the ground, um, well, let me, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here. Let me see if I can just move this along a little bit quicker here. Um, A lot of times what happens, though, is that we don't think that maybe he's in charge of the uh, situation or he's not conscious of it. But was there anything that surprised Jesus by what took place? No, there was nothing. He, he knew everything that was going on around him, exactly the intentions of the men, exactly how to respond to the situation that came his way. You might argue that he was able to do that. He knew that the men were coming. He knew all this stuff was happening. You might argue that he knew that. Well, after all, who is he? God. Right? And sometimes I think we use that as an excuse for Jesus in saying, because, you know, we are supposed to be somewhat like Jesus. But what do we say? Well, I can't be like Jesus. He was God. So I'm just going to continue to live in my sins. I'm going to continue to have rotten thoughts. I'm going to continue to think bad things. I'm going to continue to misbehave because I'm not God. Jesus was God, and so he always operated in his divine nature. But that's not what the Bible teaches. He set it aside. He was fully God, but yet he was fully man. And and what what is really interesting is is that when Jesus was, in in Luke chapter 3, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came on Jesus in the form of a dove, and the Father said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? I didn't hear you. Yes. yes, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christ follower, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Guess what Holy Spirit that is? It's the same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus when he was baptized. And, and so what Jesus has been doing all these three years with his disciples watching him, he's been having conversation with the Father. And if you remember correctly... Jesus said, I don't say anything of my own accord. I only say what my father tells me to say. In other words, he had his ears attuned to what the Spirit of God was telling him to say, and then he would say it. He was always in constant communication. He was always constantly talking with God. He had this thing going on between him and God all the time. And so he always was in that place of receiving. His receptors were wide open always to hear from God, to see what God was calling him to do. He was always wide open to that because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. We have the same Holy Spirit in our lives. And what he's asking us to do is to to open up to him, to receive, to have our receptors 
activated by the Holy Spirit so that we hear better what He's saying to us, so that we see more fully what God's doing around us. And that's, that's why Jesus was able to step out and to know what was going on. Now, He, he was indeed God. But what happens is, is when we are receptive to hearing what the Spirit is saying, when we are receptive to seeing what the Spirit of God is doing, we will not be shaken by any of the events of our life that would normally rock us. We will rest in the presence of God and wait for Him to move us to the place He wants us to go he, and, until we hear what it is He wants us to pray or what He wants us to say. And I know that we have difficult times in our life and we may even feel like God is absent or that he's not with us or that he's not acting on our behalf as best as he should be and that he's silent but the truth is he is at work and he is involved and he does know and he will do what is best he calls us though to be patient because in Isaiah 40 it says that those who do what wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength those who wait upon the Lord. In Psalm 23 or uh, 37, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do you know how to sit and be patient before God? Good. Especially when you're ADD, ADHD, and LMNOP. <laughs> You have a hard time sitting on the throne, at the porcelain throne at home. You just can't sit still. You can't do it. You can't shut your mind off. You're always busy with something. I mean, I think, you know, my two boys, they're... That boy could not quit drumming. Justin, always moving. And Tyson thinks he's better off than his brother, but he's not. Don't ever sit on the couch with him when he's watching a program because his leg starts to shake and you think you're in an earthquake. You can't sit still. But the Bible calls us to be silent before God and to wait for him. It's not easy. It's not easy. But when you get quiet, when your soul is quiet, when you open your ears and you wait for the Lord to move, He will give you a picture of who He is and what He wants to do and where He wants you to go and what He wants you to say. He will give you a picture of your life with Him and it will be far more impressive than anything you've ever dreamed for yourself. That's what Jesus was doing in the garden. He was waiting upon God. I'm going to skip down to um, 18. Uh, You know what? I'm pretty much done. Um, You know, Peter thought he was going to take on 650 armed guys, so he pulled this sword out of his 
sheath and he's lopped off. What's the guy's name again? Malchus. Lopped his ear off. Chopped the guy's ear off. I was kind of impressed with that. Because I never thought a sword being that sharp. I kind of thought it was a blunt, more like just a, a metal club. But obviously this thing had a little edge to it because it took the guy's ear off. And in Luke's account, Jesus picks the ear back up and presses it against, the, against Malchus' ear, head, and his ear is restored. Now, I, I'm just, this is me thinking out loud, but if I'm that guy that just got healed by Jesus... I don't really think I want to take him to be crucified now. I'm thinking like, this guy could be handy in a tight spot. Right? I mean, like, look, hey, mom, you're not feeling well? I got Jesus locked in the closet over here. Let me get him. All right, Jesus, go touch my mom. But, you know, that's, that's the thing. Jesus was absolutely in control of the whole situation. Um, in Luke's account, he, he also said that to the people that came to arrest him, he says, um, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. Once again, Jesus is in control of the situation. Once again, Jesus says, I'm giving you permission. I'm not I'm pulling back. I'm going to let you do what I want you to do to me. And it's for the Father's glory. So here's the thing. We think that when Jesus was arrested in the garden, it was a tragedy. We think about our own garden experiences and that they are also a tragedy. We have all kinds of tragic events going on in our life. This does not do away. But I'm going to tell you, those tragic events... Jesus is all over him. It's not a tragic event when God's involved. And this doesn't do away with the wounds of affliction in this life. But it's encouraging to see that behind human tragedy stands the benevolent and wise purpose of the Lord of human history. Life may be dark at times. Tragedy may come. And at times, the whole world may seem to be falling apart. The wheel of this world may be, appear ready to crush us, but that is not the end. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Even in the garden. Jesus is aware and is in control of your circumstances, your situation. He's stepping forward on your behalf, and he is calling you to step forward with confidence in him. And today, the call to step forward may be you need to repent. Maybe God's poking you right here this morning, and there's something that's going on, and he's going like, that ain't right, son. Daughter, that's not good. And I'm going to poke you and I'm going to call you on it. And he keeps poking, he keeps calling, he keeps poking, and he keeps calling. And we keep trying to push it away and push it away and push it away. But here's the thing. You will never be free until you repent of whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Maybe Jesus is 
asking you to step forward and surrender everything you have. Your life, your family, your home, your business, your thought life, everything. He's just saying, if you give it to me, you'll be amazed at what I do with what you give to me. Maybe he's asking you to surrender. Maybe there's a dark spot in your life that you've never surrendered to God. It's that one little little room in your heart that you still hold the key to and you go, I like going in there once in a while and I don't want Jesus to go in there and unlock that door and find all that nasty stuff. It's a secret. I don't want him to know. And you hold that key and you will not surrender it to Jesus. Maybe Jesus is calling you to step forward and make a stronger commitment in serving him. Maybe he's tapped you a number of times to step up and do something. And you're like, ah, I just don't think I can do that. I don't have enough time to do that. It's just, you know, it's, that's for those really religious people. And I'm not religious. And yet the, the call to commitment doesn't go away. Maybe Jesus is asking you to step forward and present that one big prayer request that you have never brought to him because you're afraid he can't answer it. You're sick. You know someone who's sick. You've got a dad wound in your heart that needs to be healed. You've got... uh, conflict and strife. I don't know what it is. But there always seems to be that one really big thing that we're afraid to ask God for because we don't think He can deliver. But He can. What God is really asking us to do today is to step forward, and to step over fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. And when we step over fear, all of a sudden, there's a brightness that comes shining from the Son of God that lights up our world, and we see better now than we've ever seen before. We experience more. We hear more. We know more of God's goodness and His love to us. So the, just, I only have one question for you today. What is it that God's calling you to step forward on? What is it? Do it. I'm going to finish off like I started. God loves you just the way you are, but he's not willing to leave you where you're at. Amen? Our Father, we just want to thank you. Glory. Your name is holy, Jesus. You are to be lifted up on high. Because you stepped forward when everybody else was stepping back. You stepped out of the shadows when we want to step into the shadows. You give to us what we don't deserve. We just All we can do is really say, we don't have words to express it very well, so we say thank you. Thank you for loving me the way I am, and please don't let me stay the way I am. And where you're calling me to step forward, give me the strength to do it.
Give me the courage to do it. Don't let my pride run me out of the room. Oh, come, Lord God, and do what you need to do in the hearts of your men and women. We ask these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. Hey, I just want to remind you. We want, if you want prayer, I want you to come up here to the front. Just get out from where you're at. Other people come up here and they'll pray with you. Just come up here and pray. And, and by the way, if you come up here and pray, it's not like you're putting on a sign that says, I'm a dirty, rotten little sinner and I've got a lot of unconfessed sin that I need to deal with, and everybody's going to be looking at you thinking how bad you really are. Actually, if you come forward, that's where the holiness of God meets you, and the rest of the dirty, rotten little sinners sit in their chair and go like, I wish I had the courage to do that. So don't let those ends of the pew become a gate to you and God. Walk through it. Come up here. Just share with God what's on your heart. It's going to be a great experience that you'll have with Jesus.